Hey, it's Ethan. As a love extremist, I'm always searching for the bridges that bring us closer together as humans. Over the course of this podcast, I've learned that when we face major life changes, they can become a connection point for deep inquiry, storytelling, and emotional growth. With that in mind, I'm devoting this current season of Love Extremist Radio to life changes, and specifically focusing on millennials engaging with a life-changing diagnosis. I'll connect with folks from all sides of the medical system to eke out the personal stories and lessons that show up when our bodies let us down. If you like what you hear, subscribe, post a review, and share it with a friend or two. Shoot me a DM at Ethan Lipsitz, that's E-T-H-A-N-L-I-P-S-I-T-Z, once you do, and I'll send you a sweet little piece of wearable art from the Love Extremist crew. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hello, Zane. How's it going? Hey, how are you? Doing good. Good, good. I sneakily pressed record as the phone was buzzing. I like to get a little bit of the ring in the mix. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. So we're going to jump right into it. Do you have everything you need? I'm set. I'm going to read off your bio real fast and then we'll jump into the convo. Sound good? It sounds great. Sounds wonderful. Awesome. Dr. Zane Allison is a Lakewood, Colorado-based neurosurgeon and spine surgeon who specializes in cranial and spinal neurosurgery with an interest in neurotrauma, neuro-oncology, open neurovascular surgery, and minimally invasive and traditional spine surgeries. Dr. Allison has worked in Madagascar and Bali and founded a 501c3 nonprofit organization, Gratia Servo, to help fund access to emergency medical care in Madagascar. Working in different regions of the world, as well as the U.S., has given Dr. Allison a unique perspective when caring for patients with different backgrounds, approaching difficult medical decisions by treating patients as if they are part of his family. His goal is to inform patients of all of their options, both surgical and non-surgical, while guiding them toward realistic expectations. I condensed it a little bit, but I tried to hit the important I think, points here. I think here. you got the gist. Yeah, and th there's a lot more behind this bio that I want to dig into. But I understand a few days ago we had a conversation, and you told me the next day after our call you were going to jump into a craniotomy, right? Uh, an open yeah, brain yeah. surgery, and the patient was going to be awake for that. Yeah. Can you just it's, walk us through <laughs> that experience and how that it's, works? It's a absolutely. It's it's a very unique experience, as you can probably imagine. That's one of the types of brain surgery that I, it, it's not that it's so rare that nobody ever does them, but it's not a it's not a run of the mill case. But the brain doesn't have pain fibers. So if I stump my toe or step on a nail or something like that, there's fibers that run up and tell my brain that, hey, you screwed up your foot. But those types of fibers are not in the brain itself. Because the brain's so not used you, to being prodded and poked at. Not only is it not used to, it's not designed for mm -hmm. that. So there, there are no pain sensors in the brain. So you can do surgeries and lop off big chunks of the brain with somebody awake. I think one of the, <laughs> the real Hollywood parts of that are Silence of the Lambs right. when he's eating the guy's, I think he feeds him his own brain. It was a really well done, but creepy movie. But yeah, you could theoretically do that. That wasn't a, that wasn't just totally made up. 
but you don't have to. And that's the thing is, so for some of these brain tumors where they're in what we call eloquent areas or parts of the brain that you would really notice a problem with, you can do it awake and take out that tumor without taking out the functionality that you need. So if you are a opera singer and that is what defines you and this tumor is near your speech and near your music comprehension and near your singing, then you'd want to make sure and not take that away because you got the tumor out, but at what expense? So throughout the surgery, this person is basically singing in their vibrato. If you're an opera singer, yeah, you can YouTube a lot of these videos where uh, people are playing the guitar and the OR, playing the violin or singing. And so you'll do that while uh, we can give them a little bit of burst of electrical stimulation on the brain. And if you stimulate that area and the singing stops, or their speech stops, or they can no longer move their right hand, or they can no longer do arithmetic, or they can no longer see, then you know that is a important area of the brain. And so you don't take that part out. Do you know what that's like for the patient to be awake doing this? Is that traumatic? I I can guess, but I've never done it. I've been on the other side, but I've never been the patient. But I've talked with a lot of people that have done these, and some people don't remember it at all. It's not that we give you no medication for it. So the way that I do them is you go to sleep for the craniotomy, so you're unconscious while we're doing the drilling in the bone. Right. And then we take away the medicine so you wake up. And then you can talk with us and stimulate the areas that we need to stimulate and take out the tumor and then go back to sleep to close everything up. People remember some of it. Some people remember none of it. Some people just remember the whole feel of it that, oh, yeah, it was really weird. I remember this girl that was talking to me. And so it depends on the person. But the people that remember it, um, there are some people that are a little too traumatic. I've not met any of those and read reports about them. There's some people that really freak out too much and they, they just can't handle it. And so they have to go to sleep uh, for the whole surgery, And I also which imagine, makes the surgery more dangerous. That's interesting. So it's more dangerous if they're asleep because... You from, can, from a resection standpoint, yeah. Because I, I was asleep for mine, I think. <laughs> <laughs> At least I don't recall you, being you, woken up. You probably were, yeah. But there was definitely electricity being used to stimulate. It was motor strip stuff. So they could yeah, do the yeah. stimulation and see if it was impacting my foot based on running yep. the electric charge, which is yep. pretty wild to you think about. Can. Yep, that, that's, a whole nother, that's a whole nother way of doing it. And for some motor stuff, that's a little easier to do when you're asleep because we can just stimulate an area and see if your foot moves. Yeah. And if you're getting pathways in that area, that you need to avoid that. For speech and vision, it's a little harder because there are a little more intricate systems involved with that. Right. Well, your motor stuff is pretty straightforward. It either moves or it doesn't. There, there are some intricacies to it, but it's a little more straightforward. Yeah, that's interesting. I also wonder when you're in the OR, you're hooked up to anesthesia and IVs and all sorts of things. So you don't have that yeah. much mobility to play the violin, as you said. Or You set it up a little differently. Okay. Usually you're set up, you're just draped in all these towels and you know, all these sterile drapes and, and you're strapped down to the bed. Right. With these awake surgeries, you have a little bit more freedom. Your head is still secured, so your head is locked in place. You can't move your head. Okay. But you can still move your arms. You can still move your legs, get a little more comfortable. You almost have a little more of a concierge kind of service where people are always asking you, does that feel okay? Do you need to move, shift you around some? It's incredible. Um, so you, you have a little bit more more freedom with it, but I get as much freedom as you can get with your head locked into some 
metal torture device pens. And I think about that, I guess there was a MRI that was being taken of my brain during the surgery. So I wonder if that was a similar type of situation because they needed to be able to operate with the MRI in the room. It depends on how they had the room set up, but intraoperative MRI is a great tool for these low-grade gliomas, for the grade two, grade three kind of things. What we can do is you take as much of the tumor out until you think you're done, right? and then you scan the head and if there's anything left. And if there's nothing left, then you're done. But if there's just a little bit left, then you go ahead and take that out. The way we did that before intraop MRI is you would just take out as much as you thought was safe and then get a scan the next day or maybe later that day. And if there was anything left, you either just left it or you took them back for a whole nother surgery. You got to go back to sleep, another intubation. You got to open the skin again, increase infection risk. Yeah, it's a- yeah intraop MRI is a, a great tool. Huh. So wild. Okay, I want to back up. We just got really technical really fast. You've done, what, 1,900 of these, you said? Or was it 1,200? Throughout, throughout the training, throughout residency, it was about 1,900 cases, yeah. That's incredible. And so uh, what got you into being a neurosurgeon <clears throat> and getting into this field? And also, can you share with the audience where you are in your process and how old you are and all that stuff? Yeah, so I'm 35. I just finished my residency this past spring. And so I've started my job here in uh, Lakewood, Colorado, just outside of Denver as a neurosurgeon. I got into this for kind of a, kind of like anybody that gets into anything, there's not usually one thing that spurs it. It's a couple of things that kind of keep pushing you in that direction until you can't say no. But when I was 18, I had a tumor in my skull and I got it diagnosed and went through that whole process of you're totally normal one day and then the next day you've got this tumor and you don't know what it is and people start talking about tumors and cancers and your idea of immortality that everybody has at 18 just gets destroyed when you go from totally normal to I might die in in the course of a couple hours. And we went through the craniotomy and it went great. He did a fantastic job at so Dr. Arrington in Amarillo, he's fantastic. And by the next day, I was totally fine. Wow. And so I, I had this push of I'm going to die to I'm completely fine, and it's a benign tumor, and move on with the rest of your life. And I thought, that is incredible. What a wild ride to go from this I'm immortal, and then I'm no longer immortal, I'm going to die to, oh my God, I got the rest of my life. This is great. So you get this kind of new new lease on life. But in the very next year, my grandfather had a, a, a brain tumor, a glioblastoma, which is a unfortunately a very aggressive type of brain cancer. And he had his treatment very close to uh, home for me. And so I got to go through that treatment process with him all the way from the diagnosis to the surgery and the recovery and all the post-op radiation, the whole nine yards. And then later, so then I, uh, it really pushed me to want to go to medical school. Can I just uh, pause you for a second? Cause I want to go back yeah, to that period of time between when you were diagnosed or you knew you had a tumor and then you had the surgery and it was all clear. How long was that? Was yeah. that a couple of weeks? Was that a few months? How long? Probably two days. I think it was about two days. Okay. So you had a really intense mortality confrontation for two days and then you were, oh, nope, I'm immortal again. <laughs> or in, I got a new some, life. Yeah. In some sense, it was, I, I don't think it, I don't think it went back to immortal. I've never felt that sense of immortality since then. Yeah. And it's not, if you really go back to it and talk to somebody who's 18, you ask them if they're immortal, they'll say no. Everybody knows you're not immortal, but 
you have, you have that feeling. Sure. It is very real. Yeah. And I'm sure we've all experienced that, but taking that feeling away is really easy to describe. It's hard to describe what it feels like when you think you're going to live forever deal. Right. But when that is taken away from you, it's very easy to describe. Facing your own mortality, I think, is a life-changing experience. That's, it really is. Yeah, and that's that's the morsel that I think is so integral to these conversations I'm hosting. And I really want to get into that. I want to continue your story, but I want to just yeah. double-click on that a little bit because I'm curious, did you have support with that confrontation, with that mortality oh, check sure. in the moment? And yeah, where did that come Absolutely. from? It was my parents and my family. I was my freshman year in college, so I was one semester into college. I just got out of the house. And came home for Christmas when this all got diagnosed. And so the whole family's still there. And especially during the holidays, your your whole friend base is back home. Freshman year of college, all your friends that went off to college, everybody's back home. So I had a very strong friend base and a very strong family base. And uh, getting to just talk to everybody and hear everybody's opinion on things was super helpful. Because everybody sees things in a different view. Mm-hmm. And just getting to something that I I talk to patients about a lot is you hear somebody say the word cancer or tumor, or you could replace that with anything, heart attack, Mm -hmm. diabetes, whatever you want to say. And when you first get a diagnosis of something, it's terrifying. And then you talk about it again, you talk about it for about an hour or something, and it's still just mind numbing and terrifying. By the 10th or 20th time you talk about it, it's not less real, but it's less scary. It just becomes part of what it is. It's just how it is now. So how? And, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's a that's the benefit of having such strong support system and getting to talk about it with so many people. Is by the time you answer the question for the three hundredth time, it's it's just part of it. It's not a scary thing anymore. It's just part of your life. Huh. It's so interesting. How? Yeah. That process of normalizing a diagnosis Mm -hmm. so that it becomes part of your conversation, part of your life is both really supportive and also can be limiting, especially when that diagnosis is chronic or terminal, because sometimes it can become a attachment to identity. And I am grappling with this myself. I have anywhere where I have a bio Living beyond brain cancer is the way I phrase yeah, it. Yeah, you're the brain cancer guy. And so I think, yeah. was that something that you continued to attach to after this experience? Or was it something that you were able to quickly release and move on with your life without it being core to your story? That is a fantastic question that I don't think that I have ever really thought about. And I think our situations are different because of the pathology that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And so mine was something that was there. I did my follow-up scans. I think it was a year later and maybe three or four years later Mm -hmm. and there was nothing there. And so it was done. It's gone. There's no risk of it. No, no real risk of it coming back and being a problem down the road. And so I think when I got that news that it's just gone, it became less of an identity thing. It's something that I still talk, obviously we're talking about it here. So I still talk about it and it's something that you talk with patients about. And I had a craniotomy. You're going to have a craniotomy. This is how I felt. This is how I would expect you're going to feel. It's something where you can relate. It's a very unique relating to thing with neurosurgery, but do not think that it defines me 
as it did when I was 18, that right. first year after it. Yeah, that's who I was. I was the guy with the big scar on his head, the guy that had big surgery with a metal plate in his head. That was what I was. Uh, but I think it's changed a lot since. I, I don't think that really defines me now. It did certainly impact... I would say you're, I just had a conversation with a therapist who studies mortality salience and, and it's like your oh, comfort yeah. level with mortality, that being part of your identity in a way or, or your awareness. It's like your oh, wisdom. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, so that, that became part of who you were or what you had to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Most 18 year olds aren't necessarily thinking about on a daily or regular basis. Of course. So how do you approach <laughs> this news when you're talking to a patient, when you have to deliver a diagnosis, especially to someone who's young, 18, 20, yeah. 30, like, like us, like in our age range, who's at the first third or quarter of their life and is facing mortality all of a sudden, how do you approach that? I think first and foremost, you've got to understand that you're going to approach them and the response is going to be skepticism. I mean, anything, anytime anybody says something really bad, your car got stolen, your dad has died, you have brain cancer, any, anything like that, it, the first thought is that's not true. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just not true because I'm totally fine. I talked to my dad yesterday. He can't have died. I just drove my car over here. There's no way somebody stole it. It was just in it. That It's going to be met with, with skepticism and you have to acknowledge that and so i always try to acknowledge that when i talk to someone and say i i realize i'm a stranger you have no idea who i am we met five minutes ago and i'm gonna have to give you some bad news and i want to just put that out there that i understand that you think that this is weird and uh, so i think it's important that you acknowledge something like that from the get-go you gotta you gotta be empathetic with it and just realize that this is this changes everything for them. You had plans of getting married. You had plans of you're about to buy a house. We were going on a trip next week. We had all this stuff that was ready to go. And all of those plans change. Everything with the, the drop of a hat, all that is either up in the air or it's over. And that is something that they're going to be thinking about while you're talking. And I think that's a really important thing for people that are delivering bad news to realize is that you have a lot that you need to say, but everything that you're going to be saying, people aren't listening. They're thinking about their plans. So all these kind of things that are now different. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to talk about that and say that you acknowledge those fears and those changes and say, I, I realize that this changes a lot of who you are and a lot of what's going to happen, but we're going to get through this together. And if you have any questions that you think are weird, that you think are dumb, that all that kind of stuff, it doesn't matter. Just ask it because you're going to be more upset that you didn't ask it uh, than asking it. And nobody's going to make fun of you for having a question. That's just not how it works. But people do feel sometimes that I don't want to ask that because I don't want to look stupid. That's just not the case. Have you ever found yourself emotionally emotional in, in this process? Yeah. And do you ever find it challenging to deliver the news or to hold your strength while in the room, the clinical. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I think you get somewhat emotional every time. I think if you get to a point where you are no longer emotional by telling somebody that they have a loved one that's died or telling someone they have a terminal illness or telling someone they have a, a life-changing diagnosis, if that does not make you emotional, something's wrong. You got to take a step back, mm -hmm. take, take some time off or reassess what you're doing because going in and telling somebody that they've lost their parents or 
that or, or even worse telling some parents that they're they've lost their child or they're going to lose their child um that makes you emotional it just there, there's no way there's no way around it so even if you keep it together in the room um you think about it a lot and even just sitting here talking about it i can i can think about multiple times and i, I still remember people's faces and people's responses and what they said and what they didn't say and just the way the stunned feelings that everyone has. So I think that always stays or it should stay with you. And what resources do you have for yourself to deal with that process, those emotions and working through that challenge of having to deliver bad news on a regular basis for your job? Yeah, it's got to be different for everybody, I'm sure. But you have to have some kind of way to blow off some steam. And so for me, I'd like to I like to run, I do marathons, and uh, I like to be outside, camp, hike. That's part of the reason for it being Colorado. So anytime there's been like a bad day for me, if, if I have a possibility of just going on a long run, um, that is very cathartic. One of the big things, too, is just being able to talk about it. I have a fantastic uh, fiance, Tanya, and being able to talk with her about anything, it, I don't even really know how to explain that. It, it, without that release, it would be very difficult to just bottle everything up forever totally and then i've got a very supportive family as well i've talked i've had times where i had a tough tough conversations about losing kids or talking with parents about losing kids mm. and calling my mom and saying what do i say this is such an awful thing so my mom had a stillbirth Oh, wow. i forget who i was maybe six years old so she's gone through some aspect of losing a child mm-hmm and uh, she's been a great resource for me. Just how do I talk to moms? What do I say here? What do I say? That I know it's going to hurt, but how do I lessen the blow here, but but still stay normal? Yeah. And uh, I, I think those kind of resources are amazing to have. And uh, without that, I, I definitely would not be in the place that I'm at. Wow. Yeah, I, that's you're you're fortunate to have those resources in your family and so close um, and so necessary. I want to go back to what you said about skepticism and how often when people receive the news of a diagnosis, um, they're skeptical. And I will never forget, I think it was Deepak Chopra was speaking about Mm -hmm. how when Mm -hmm. we receive a challenging uh, diagnosis, we can accept the diagnosis, but we don't have to accept the prognosis. And I'm curious if you agree with that. And if skepticism actually is a strength in the context of the prognosis. I, I think so. You're, so anytime you're talking about prognosis, it is based on your law of averages. Mm-hmm. And you're likely going to fall within that average. And some people are going to be on the left of the bell curve and some people are going to be on the right. But you will fall somewhere on that bell curve. With the way that medicine has advanced and the way that it will continue to advance, we we don't know where how that curve is going to shift and how it's going to move. When my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer, we got a call from the oncologist that they had a uh, a brand new targeted therapy that was it had just gotten FDA approval. It was brand new, right on the market, and they started them on it, and it, it shrank everything for the first six months or so that he had lung cancer. It just, it zapped it. It got rid of it. I had, I was four years out of medical school. Hmm. I'd never even heard of this stuff. Wow. And I'd never seen cancer react to a medicine that way. 
And it was incredible. These targeted therapies are changing the way that uh, we treat cancer. And so that really made me think a lot about it. And when you think about these five-year survival rates or 10-year survival rates, it takes a lot of time to get that data. They don't get a 10-year survival rate out of 10 years. Mm. It, it takes, it's got to take 20 or 30 years to collect enough data of how many people survived 10 years to get that kind of point that says, okay, 75% of people survived 10 years. So if it's a 30-year timeline to get a 10-year survival rate, and I'm talking with somebody today with a tumor that they have and say, well, the 10-year survival rate is 75% or 25%, that data, some of it's from the 90s. Right. And the treatments that we had in the 90s are very different than they are today. Some of the stuff is the same, but what your interpretive MRI, that was few and far between the 90s. And now you can probably find a place to get that done. It's not so uncommon that it's impossible. Mm -hmm. And so things like targeted therapies and different kinds of radiation therapies and those kind of things, they, they are drastically changing the prognosis of medicine. So anytime someone is given this diagnosis and they say, well, this is the prognosis, it's a best guess. And it's a best guess that might have changed a lot uh, today versus five years ago. That's interesting and good to know in in how we receive this information and think about it. And yeah. I, I also, I wonder if um, you've seen the medicine of, I don't know if it's optimism, um, but I want to think it is. The kind of like hope, faith, optimism, uh, an agenda of healing. Because yeah. I can certainly yeah. speak to that personally. When I was diagnosed, I, I said, yes, I'm going to work through the treatment here. And... I'm not going to let this thing kill me. And that intention that I've set has set me on a path to continue living for as long as I can and not let this be the cause of death, even though it certainly is the cause of a major mortality check. I wonder, do you see variable outcomes in patients that have more kind of faith or optimism versus those that... Oh, yeah. People that do not want to survive or do not have the will to survive do not survive. It's very, very obvious. And people that, and you know, there, there are some people on that side of the coin that, that really want to live and are very optimistic that are just really dealt a set of bad cards. And even though they're incredibly optimistic and they have all the support system and everything's going their way, it, it, it doesn't work out. I think my dad, again, I'm going to keep going back to my dad and all this, but he was, I think on that point, he got a fantastic medicine. It shrank everything to almost non-existent, you know, sizes, and he had a great support system, and he was very much at it. He was going to beat this thing. He was going to fight it, and then it mutated, and it took over, and it killed him, and he was optimistic on it. He had the support system. He had the he had modern medicine behind him. He had the church behind him. He had the family behind him. He had, it, every, everything was good, mm. and it just didn't work, and that happens, but I've never seen somebody with just a real piss poor attitude that just says, Oh God, nothing's going to work. Nothing's going to work here. I'm not going to make it through this. That lives forever. And it, it doesn't work. If, if you're thinking that way from the get go, then yeah, that's, there's a lot of kind of manifesting. I think that goes into that. If you think it's not going to work, it's probably not going to work. But I've seen a lot of people that really have a lot of faith in it, whether it's their religion or faith in medicine or just good old fashioned optimism. Yeah. And it is fantastic. 
So you're talking to someone who's right on the edge of the Pacific Ocean. I'm here on the West Coast. You're not you're not too far away yeah. yourself. Yeah. There's a lot of options for outside of the hospital treatments, one could say, or protocols oh, yeah. that go beyond Western medicine, whether they be yeah. Eastern yeah. or holistic or nutritional. Now we're seeing a lot of nutrition actually integrated into oncology, which is really exciting. But I'm yeah. curious to hear where you see opportunity, where you fall in terms of moving beyond just the standard of care and patients really taking their additional protocols and moving into caring for themselves beyond the hospital. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of room for growth in that. And there's a lot of or a big lack of understanding in modern medicine about a lot of this. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the big ones for me with spine surgery is people come in with intractable pain. And I saw this a lot more in medical school in Hawaii, but I've definitely seen it here too, is people will go for acupuncture. Mm -hmm. And I cannot tell you how acupuncture works. Like I, I do not understand <laughs> it. It, there's no anatomical model that makes sense to me. And I have no reason to tell somebody that, Hey, this is going to work for you because of this and this, but man, I've seen some people get wonderful results with it. And you could say the same thing about a, a lot of different things. People that have had their tumors shrink on ketogenic diets and yeah. stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it, I don't know how to explain that, but the fact that I, can't explain it does not mean that people haven't gotten good results. And so the way that I, I think a lot of times in the scientific community that is explained this way is, okay, well, people, they went on a ketogenic diet and they stopped having seizures. Had they not gone on the ketogenic diet, maybe they would have stopped having seizures anyway. Maybe they're not related at all. Mm -hmm. And that could be, sure, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. Who knows? The ketogenic diet's not hurting them. It, so there's, I think that's where I draw the line is you're not going to, if you have really bad back pain and really bad radiculopathy and you're having a hard time walking and you go and get acupuncture, it's definitely not going to hurt you. And if it helps you, rock on. That's amazing. I'm all for it. But it's definitely not going to hurt you. Mm. Now, there's some things where there's medicines that can hurt you. If you read something online about, oh, if you take two cyanide pills, it'll take your pain away. <laughs> Let's hold on for a little bit. Take a lot That's more away than move. that. Yeah. It's going to take, it's going to take everything away. That I think is the line is if there's something that is going to be dangerous to you, or if there's something that's going to directly interfere with some of the medicines that you're on or something like that. And I don't know, you got to have a strong talk and say, if, if you want to stay on these medicines, we can't have you on that diet or we can't have you doing these types of things. But if they have no contraindications with each other, yeah, absolutely. Why would you not try it? Mm -hmm. The risks are minimal to nothing. So I don't have any specifically that I would regularly prescribe people, but when they come and ask me about them, I'm, I'm all for trying things out. Yeah, it's interesting. And I appreciate that. I also think maybe there's an open-mindedness to our generation or just your background, yeah. having trained in Hawaii and all the things that you've seen and done and lived. I wonder, this kind of leads me down a path of the P patriarchal nature of being a doctor and this desire yeah. that many patients might come to you with, which is we want you to have the final word. We want you to have an opinion and to be yeah. firm in that opinion and to tell us what to do because you're the doctor and you know best. What do you think about that? Do you align with that value set or do you feel like mm, I kind of want to be a more collaborative with my patients. I want to be more very, it's very patient specific. If people need me to be a 
tiebreaker for the family or just need me to give them an answer and say, this is what I think is best. I can do that. I can tell you what, if I was in your situation, what I would do, or if you were my brother, this is what I would tell you to do. I'm happy to give those kind of opinions. That's what you need. But if you come in and you get this life altering diagnosis or a non life altering diagnosis, it could be, you just got some back pain mm-hmm. and you have a friend who's a chiropractor that said that they could do this or this, or you got a friend who does acupuncture that can do this and this. What do you think? Yeah, I can give you, I give you my thoughts on it. And we can say, well, because of this and this, I would do this and this, or because of this and this, why don't you look into this and this? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's, that's totally fine. So I don't think, I think if you approach it as I'm going to be the patriarchal doctor in every single situation that you're going to burn bridges mm-hmm. doing that. Cause there's, you're going to, you're going to meet a patriarch and <laughs> it's going to, it's not going to be a fun time. So you have to just tailor to the, to the person. Yeah. I want to shift into just your feelings around spirituality in the hospital. And yeah. what I mean by that is the hospital is a place of tr- transcendence. Literally you have yeah, birth, yeah. you have death, you have major life change, you have diagnoses, you have people opening skulls to the air brains to getting oxygen how do you relate to the spiritual nature of the hospital and how do you experience that where do you see it in practice kind of like you you mentioned you see it everywhere it's a very unique place birth death life changes and that's what makes it different every time you talk to somebody i've had times where i've talked with families about somebody who is just dying right before our eyes and there's nothing that we can offer them at all. And they're just the happiest, go luckiest. The patient's happy. The family's happy. Everybody's just having a good time. Hmm. And you're, it's, you think, I don't know if you heard me. There's, this is it. I don't have anything else. I'm out of tricks. This is all it is. And they're, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We knew this day was going to come, but thanks so much. I'm just happy. Hmm. And then at the same time, there's times where you go in and you say, there's nothing wrong with you. I don't have any, I don't find any tumors. I don't find any herniated discs. There's nothing there. And just really, I, I think really wanted something to be wrong for reasons that I, I can't explain. And so really sad. And it's a, it's a big emotional journey for the patients and for the doctors for all of that. I, one thing that I've always thought is really interesting from the job that I never would have thought of before is sometimes the people that are the most grateful talking with me are the people that I was unable to do anything for. And people that come in with just a horrible brain injury, you got a horrible gunshot to the head or really bad car wreck. And there's just no surgery that's going to fix it. They're going to succumb to this, unfortunately. And it's not every time for sure, but a lot of times the families are super thankful. They get a lot of, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much for that. And I didn't do anything. I didn't know I was there. I came to talk to you, but I didn't do anything. Do you think that's because when the patient, when there's no option for intervention, there's just the only option is acceptance. And in that acceptance, it's almost like everyone is more sensitive. Everyone is more emotionally intelligent. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think that's really where a lot of it is. And it comes down to that, that when you have no options left, being kind is nice. Some people default to that. But you have to go back to your your initial thought that the spiritual feel of the hospital is, it's very different. It can sometimes be inverse of what you would think. 
Yeah. But it's a very interesting place. You mentioned how you cope with some of the challenges, but do you have any kind of more run-of-the-mill numbing agents that you find yourself going to just at the end of an exhausting week or day or ways that you just exhale and get back into your normal flow of life after a really intense experience? You're talking about just like having a beer or something like that? Yeah. I think. Yeah. That'll, yeah, it'll always <laughs> numb things up a little bit. That's not always, it's not always possible because, you know, you don't want to say I'm on call and I have a really bad experience. Right. And I, after that's over, you're, there's still another surgery to do. There's still another, okay, I can't right. start taking shots to, to make it disappear because I, <laughs> I still got to show up. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I, I think getting lost in a good story, reading a fun book. I like to read stuff that's not medicine. You know, you can get lost in some kind of sci-fi world or something that's just otherworldly and maybe escape to that for a little bit. That's always fun or a TV show, something like that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways to get rid of it. But like we alluded to before, you, you don't want to get to the point where you don't notice those things anymore, where you right. try and block them out to the point where they don't bother me. I really don't want to get to that point. I want to be able to deal with you know, have emotional wellness and be savvy enough to not let things spiral me. But uh, I don't want to ever get to a point where I'm totally numb to other people's problems. Because mm-hmm. then I, if I'm totally numb to them, I'm not going to be a resource for it. If I can't relate to it or don't understand the pain that somebody's going through, I'm not going to be a good resource. I'm not going to have good answers for you. Do you ever find yourself in conflict with other doctors or others? In- oh, yeah. How do you manage that? How do you manage a approach to a patient if you're not seeing eye to eye with someone else in the hospital? It's hard to take yourself out of the equation and... Because if I'm talking about doing surgery for somebody or not doing surgery for somebody, you know, there's reasons behind that. And they should be based on the patient. It shouldn't be, I don't want to do the surgery because I'm lazy and I don't want to do it. It should be, I'm not going to do the surgery because they don't need the surgery or the patient doesn't want it. And so sometimes you get into tips with other docs about why, why are you not offering the surgery or why are you offering the surgery? Mm-hmm. And people's trainings and people's experiences are different. And I think it's important for, if that happens, just to talk with the other doc about why we're doing this. And you're not going to be right 100% of the time. There's definitely times where you say, okay, I was going to do this and this. And somebody says, well, you, you realize they're allergic to this. Or you realize they had another scan that showed this. Oh, no, I, I was not aware of that. So sometimes you have disagreements with somebody that, and the reason is because People didn't have all the information, you know, you didn't know they had the scan. I can show you the scan. This is why I'm operating on. And then people have different experiences with things. There's some people that have really bad experiences with spine surgery. And there's a lot of different ideas and a lot of different people that do spine surgery. Right. So the, the guy that comes forefront to my mind is Dr. Death. They have all the podcasts. I think they had a TV show about him and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Well, and there's so shows. often there's narratives about people getting back surgery and spine surgery and then never being recovered. Never walking again. Yeah, right. Exactly. And so that that's something I touched on earlier is that the technology has changed significantly over the past 20, 30 years. And so your uncle that had back surgery in the 80s that has just been mad as hell ever since then, that doesn't have to happen now. We have very different technologies now. And so people do very well if their surgery is done for the right reasons and done appropriately. Mm-hmm. And so when you're talking to someone, then, you know, they, they come in with this and you say, well, I'm going to operate. And then 
they go see, say, their PCP or they go see a family member who's a doctor or something and say, oh, no, you should not have surgery under any circumstance. I get where they're coming from. It's not that that's horrible advice, but you don't have all the information. With like the prognosis issue, right? Like they're dealing with information that's 20, 30 years old. You're dealing with old information. Mm. And so I think that's where a lot of these doctor-to-doctor conflicts come from is just bad information. It's got to be very rare ever that it is a personal attack on somebody. I'm sure that probably happens from time to time, but most of the time, the reason you get mad at another doctor is because you don't want them to hurt the patient. Why are you doing this? This is not the right move. Why would you give them this drug? Why would you do this? And usually it's because you don't have all the information. Well, it's also challenging, I think, as a patient to consider those who we may trust in our family or those that we're close to and also the doctor and have faith in new tech, right? Because and on on the one hand, right, new technology could be extremely effective in taking out like your father's lung cancer for a period of time. On the other hand, it could also backfire and be on not well tested and, you know, of course, and could have issues. That leads me to another question, which is more about kind of the economics of medicine. And I wonder how mm-hmm. often you feel like your decision making is running up against some of the economic models of whether it be the pharmaceutical industry or the hospital network or the hospital itself <coughs> in terms of how you make decisions that are best for the patient while also recognizing the costs involved or the cost savings. Oh yeah, it's an everyday thing. One of the truisms with a lot of medicine is trauma patients are almost always underinsured or uninsured. And it's just a sad fact that a lot of these folks that have some of the worst injuries with the longest ICU stays and needing these big operations just are not covered for any of it. And so you you have a, a bad accident, you have to have brain surgery, you have to take out the blood clot, and you're in the ICU for 10 days, and you finally get out, you need to go to rehab, and you've got 250 bucks to your name with no insurance. And you're going to leave, and the hospital is going to slap you with the UOS $180,000. Right. And you think, oh my God, how is that possible? Yeah. That's insane. There's no way you can think that this guy has $180,000 stashed in the hall somewhere. There's just no way. And then almost, not even almost, definitely worse than that is you get to the end of the hospital stay and say, okay, you're going to need some traumatic brain injury rehab, or you broke your neck and you're getting some movement back, but you need to learn how to walk again. You need to go to rehab to get this done. You don't have any money. You're going to go home. And hopefully it gets better on its own. Mm. Best of luck. That's awful. That's awful. And that's not why any of us signed up to be doctors is to come in and say, you have this pathology. We have treatments for it. You are too poor to have the treatments. So I have the answer for you. This is what you need to do. But unfortunately, you can't afford it. So I wish you the best of luck. That hurts every single time. And you try to find resources so people can have and get this and get that. And sometimes it works. Sometimes there are resources available for people. But sometimes there's just no option. And you just have to say, I wish there was more we could do. Best of luck. And we deal with that every single day. And it's awful. I hate it. And I imagine that was a major challenge in working in Madagascar. I'm curious to hear a little oh, bit yeah. about that experience because you were developing resources for trauma patients, right? That, that was the initial goal was I worked as an EMT in college and I wanted to help develop the emergency medical system. Mm-hmm. So when I initially went over there, the, the initial goal was to do a needs assessment of their EMS system, which was 
pretty much non-existent and say, okay, this is where the lacking sections are. This is where we can build up and this is where we could just totally replace. And I helped teach an EMS class in Hawaii. So if I could help teach the EMTs, we get a couple of ambulances donated and we're up and running. It'll be easy. One part of the puzzle. Yeah. Well, the thing that I didn't realize, especially because I was just doing all pre-hospital care. When you get to the hospital, I went to the ER and they just, there was nothing there. They had some really passionate doctors that really wanted to help, but didn't have any tools. They didn't have a defibrillator. They, they couldn't shock somebody if they needed to. And so we have defibrillators in elementary schools. They were right. hanging on the walls. You walk past, they're everywhere. Right. They didn't have a defibrillator in their hospital. Mm-hmm. It's a capital city. There's no defibrillator in there. And so you think, okay, we can take somebody hit by a car. We get the ambulance to pick them up and take them to the hospital. They're not going to die in the street. They're going to die in this ER. There's nothing there for them. Mm-hmm. So you build up the ER. All right. So now you got them off the street. You got them into the ER. They're stabilized. They need a big operation because they're bleeding out. They don't have the resources in the OR. Okay. We can build up the OR. So you, you stop the bleeding, but you need all these lines and you all these monitors and stuff in the ICU to make sure that the operation went. Okay. So you got to build up the ICU and it's a huge process. You can't, it's, it's not reason. one cog. Yeah. It wasn't the cog was broken. It was the whole system was broken. So trying to take the American ideal of we can fix this, I think there's this concept that I'm now familiar with. I, I, I never heard this term when I started doing it, but now it's a <clears throat> you become a bigger deal. And I understand the whole white savior mentality of mm-hmm. I'm going to take my idea and go throughout the world and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix the world by myself. Right. It's a, a colonial, a colonial. Approach. Yes. Yeah. Yes. hundred percent. And I saw some of that kind of firsthand with me mm-hmm. is I'm going to, I'm going to go single-handedly fix this. I'm going to, I'm going to fix the whole machine and uh, yeah, it's a fallacy. You, you can't fix it alone. And so I, I talked with a lot of people and read a lot on it. And really the best way to get a nonprofit to work is to try and make yourself obsolete. Mm-hmm. You really want to make it to where you don't need to exist anymore. And then you've, completed your purpose. So the, you shouldn't have a 20, 30 year hierarchical plan of how we're going to readjust our board of directors and fix this. The whole goal should be to not exist. Mm. And the best way to do that isn't to send doctors from the United States to Madagascar to go and do these surgeries or do this. It's maybe you send doctors over there to go teach people how to do surgeries mm-hmm. or go teach pre-hospital care. But then they got people that are just like us. They can do everything. They just give them a little training and they can do it. Right. So that was, I think, the big takeaway for me is watching people with such drive and such passion do the best that they can and sometimes get good results with very limited resources was fantastic. And then you see us over here that we have seems like unlimited resources and you know, people aren't happy. You know, I don't have enough. I want more. Mm. And uh, that's, it's not the stuff that makes a difference. It's the person that makes a difference. And also certainly having the resources to cover the medical care here when it comes up, should it come up is also key, as we said. Yeah. It's interesting that learning that you went through and realizing, and also I think thinking about how in Madagascar, there's a history of taking care of people. It's not the Western way. 
but yeah. there is a way that it's been happening for thousands of years and Millennia, what does exactly. that look like and how do we actually learn some of their ways and maybe bring those uh exactly. back to modern medicine yeah i think there's a interesting um that savior complex is a, i'm happy to hear you bring that up and that that was the learning for you because it's a challenging one especially when you put a lot of effort into something and you want to see it succeed and then you realize it's kind of a bigger bigger macro challenge oh 100 yeah so i have one other question but i also want to give you the floor in case you have anything uh, you're curious about <laughs> as it relates to love extremism or life changes or any of the things we've been talking about um just ha- want to give you the floor if you have a, anything yeah curious after about. Well, after after looking looking stuff up and listening to the podcast and everything, I, I think one of the one of the, my big takeaways was if you're going to leave anybody with anything with any of the work that you're doing, it's just optimism. Optimism is just so powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can call it so many different things. You can call it manifesting. You can call it just being kind to other people. You can come in many different forms. But just being optimistic about yourself, being optimistic about others, I, that's been my big takeaway from talking with you and listening to what you're doing. That's the answer that I've seen with a lot of this. And it's wonderful to hear it on, on so many different platforms, so many different ways. Thank you. Yeah. So I, to, to add to that, <clears throat> a lot of the thesis of love extremism is that life is better when we choose love. And I think similarly, yeah. life is better when we're optimistic. And it's hard to argue yeah. against that. I think oh, yeah. it, there's certainly forces at play that might consistently keep us from being optimistic or challenge us and the way that we set boundaries around those forces or even um, confront them and address them is really important, especially as we consider media and other <laughs> elements that are constantly oh, yeah. feeding us oh, yeah. challenging news. There's a lot of negativity, yeah. But I think there is an opportunity for us to choose love, to choose optimism for ourselves and for our communities and to see and believe in a future that is brighter than where we are while understanding the beauty in the moment. And that's where it starts. But I'm glad you take that from this. And it's becoming more crystalline every time I have these conversations. Because <laughs> I'm sure. Because that really is a, a, a heart of well-being and of wellness and of health is recognizing that we have a certain level of sovereignty around how we perceive our circumstances and um, not always, but but when we can to choose to be optimistic and to have faith, it often prolongs our chances of survival and even thriving. Um, yeah, Definitely. That's major. I'm curious to hear just what advice you have for your fellow millennials out there who are c- caring about health or maybe have starting to think about mortality, starting maybe even dealing with a diagnosis. What do you think is an important kind of general um doctors doctor's orders from dr allison here uh in terms of what you would recommend us to yeah we're in the the information age now there there's no limit of the information that you can get and i think there are some docs that still want to be that gatekeeper to the information you have to come see me to learn what i know and I don't think that's fair. There, there's so many ways to get your information now from family, from friends, from the internet. There, there's so many different ways to get it. And so I think it's good to look stuff up. So you get diagnosed with a brain tumor. Mm-hmm. Look it up. See what you can find. You can find all sorts of stuff, everything from your podcast to medical papers that are very scientific and talk about genetic mutations and stuff. There's a huge range of what you can listen to. And it's good to it's good to hear all that and look at different alternative therapies and see these kind of treatments. But you want to look at it 
in the right way too. And that I think is hard to do without a little bit of preparation. So if you find a trial that was done where they took 500 people that had this and they gave 250 of them this medicine and 250 of them no medicine and see which one does better and really look down the line to see all that. That's a good study. That looks good. Mm-hmm. If you have somebody who went to Eastern Europe and drank their own urine for three weeks and drank bat <laughs> blood and then claimed that their tumor was gone and it's one guy, that's a little, you got to be a little skeptical of that. Now, if you read about 20 people that had the exact same experience and they all had good results, you might be onto something. If there's a lot of people that, that actually had this done. Sure. Let's talk about it. And I think it's important for doctors to be able to talk about that. <clears throat> and if I have a reason why you shouldn't be doing this, I should have a reason for it. Not just, oh, I've never heard of this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you take two cyanide pills, it'll take your pain away, but it's because it kills you. That's why you shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Not a, I don't know, that's not what I do. If there's, if you come to me with a new treatment that I've never heard of and we look it up and it really makes sense, yeah, let's do it. I'm not going to have all the answers for everything. And it's medicine is a lifelong learning career. There's always going to be stuff for me to learn. So it's very good to look up your own stuff. It's very good to do your own research. And it's good just to know that it's out there. And then it helps you get your questions answered uh, for this, that, or the other kind of treatment that you're looking for. But you don't want to get caught in a fallacy of one-off kind of crazy treatments that probably are not real. Mm -hmm. And determining whether determining where that line is difficult. And I think doctors should be able to help you with that rather than condemn you for doing your own research. I think a lot of us are in that age now where that's becoming more of a thing. Yeah. To be a partner in the research and to help you navigate that is really important. It's, it's an interesting one. And I've also seen folks suggest, especially at the acute phase, not to look up your diagnosis and to kind of limit the inputs of information because it can be extremely overwhelming in the early days. And I, I resonate with that advice. And also I remember learning about keto pretty early on and learning about how I could enhance the chemo and radiation I was doing through fasting and diet and wanted to give it a shot because it felt like, well, this isn't going to hurt me. So I may as well. No, it's not going to hurt you at all. Do it. Yeah. If it helps, that's fantastic. That's definitely going to hurt you. Yeah, I appreciate that advice. And I think we're definitely in an age where there's a lot of information. So having professionals that can help us parse through it and people that we can trust, I think it's so great to have peers. And I think so often being younger, our healthcare providers are generally a bit older than us and take on this almost parental role. So to see (coughs) peers being there, I have friends that are MDs and I text them and ask them about certain medicines and protocols and really value their advice because... Yeah, it's good to to have that kind of sounding board, even if they're not your you know s- specific doctor. Of course, yeah, I get it all the time. What is and a lot of thing that I wish I was better at is rashes. You get a lot of pictures <laughs> of rashes. What is this? Yeah. Oh man, I have no idea. Right, <laughs> I haven't seen this. I haven't seen this in ten years. I have no idea. Yeah, you got to befriend some dermatologists and they'll help yeah, exactly. You out. Yeah, that should be the one of the other takeaways from this is you need to befriend a dermatologist because right. it, it will come up some point in life. Yeah, right. everybody needs a dermatologist friend. The most useful friends to have. <laughs> awesome, well, Zane. This has been a treat. I really appreciate yeah, you making time and everyone go find Zane in Colorado if you're looking for a yeah. neurosurgeon or 
anyone there. He's in Lakewood, and we're excited that we were connected and excited to see what. Yeah, feel comes free down. to reach out with any questions or second opinions or whatever. It's it's never there's never a bad question. Awesome. We'll link to your site in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. This has been great. Have a wonderful rest of your eve, and we'll be in touch. All right. Thanks, Ethan. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Thanks for listening to Life Changes from Love Extremist Radio. Don't forget to share this episode and leave a review if it resonates. Your support helps us grow. Make sure you DM me at Ethan Lipsitz once you leave that review for some free goodies and sign up for our newsletter at www.ourlifechanges.co. Peace.